Once people were trained and they have the mindset that quality is important, then quality is free. You don't have to pay for it. And I'm almost tempted to say that in the same way, innovation can be free. If you give permission to, to innovate, you have this huge population in your company, all this innovating capability right there. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Today, I'm talking with and learning loads from Ben Bensow. Ben has written a fabulous new book called Built to Innovate, Essential Practices to Wire Innovation into Your Company's DNA. It was named one of Thinkers 50's best new management books for 2022. Ben's got a PhD from MIT Sloan School, an MA in management, Hitsubashi University in Tokyo. He's got an MS in civil engineering from ENTPE in Lyon, France. He's a professor and former dean of executive education at INSEAD. Spent a lot of time living in Japan. What a fabulous book. What a great conversation. So often businesses struggle with innovation, particularly traditional businesses. Businesses have been around a long time. Businesses that have maybe been in slow-moving industries where innovation, there was obviously some original innovation in the business, but they don't have a culture of innovation. They're a bit stuck. And often those businesses try and do all sorts of things to do innovation on the outside. Certainly, I work with some clients that are solving this problem on the outside rather than trying to solve the problem of changing the organizational DNA. And so great conversation today with Ben about how some great examples of businesses in the UK, businesses in Germany and Japan that have solved this problem of innovation in your, putting innovation back into your DNA. Talks about three things really. One is voice of the customer. So lots of companies have got voice of the customer, but how to look for those weak signals. We talk about silence from the customer. So there are things that the customer doesn't know that they have a problem with and how can you help the customer find those or the customer doesn't think you're suited to fix. How do you solve that problem? And then how to learn from non-customers. So they're the three sort of essence of some of the stuff we talk about. And then we also talk about some of the structural ways or the tools you have to put in place to make this work. Why middle managers are really, really important. And that was the takeaway that Ben had from his research. He was fascinated. He thought there would be loads of reasons that these companies did innovation better than their competitors. But actually, it turned out that they had to harness the power of their middle managers, and they do that better than anybody else. And then at the end, there's some questions from one of his, one of his case study customers in Japan, where 
you dug into some detail. How do you build this culture? How do you coach your employees to bring forward only valuable problems to solve? And the key thing is it's problems and not ideas. So how do you go problem mining? And how do you make sure that you've got a system in place for discerning great ideas? And so towards the end, he says, look, here's some questions that one of, uh, one of the middle managers in one of the businesses taught him that you just do time and time and time again. And, and it builds up a business's ability to spot good ideas and, and have them more fully formed before they bring them to the business. So amazing conversation with Ben. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. I'm Ben, Ben Bensal. I'm a professor at, uh, at INSEAD, the, uh, the business school for the world, as we like to call it. Um, so I, um, I teach and I do research and I actually uh, coach executive in, on innovation and in particular on how to build innovating capabilities. I mean, their own as an individual, their teams or their companies. So that's what I do. Fab. And what's the... What's the mix of students at INSEAD? You say business school for the world. What proportion of people are from all over the world? From all over the world. I think we must have like 140 countries represented. And, and, and what is really unique to our format is that we have three campuses, three formal campuses, one in, uh, in Fontainebleau in France, one in Singapore, and one in Abu Dhabi. We also have a research hub in San Francisco. But what we do is that uh, in the half of the student body in um, in the Fontainebleau campus comes from outside of Europe. Okay. And, the, and, and uh, conversely, half of the student body on the Singapore campus comes from outside of Asia. So this is really a, a very diverse uh, setting. Aha. That diversity is really interesting. I know when I did my MBA, it was everyone on the course was from Sheffield in England. So there was... <laughs> There was a lack of there was a lack of cultural diversity, certainly. Okay, brilliant. So we were chatting before you started, before we started recording, and you were just the genesis of this book, some research that you did, and particularly some research that you did in Japan around around innovation. So, and you said what you ended up with uh, is not what you thought you'd end up with. The answer to innovation <laughs> surprised you. <laughs> Yes. And, and so, well, so what did you think you were going to find? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually, I should say that I've, I've been NCAD for quite a, a bit of time and, and um, I've been studying and doing research and teaching on innovation for about 20 years. And, you know, in true INSEAD way, you know, I engage with companies all around the world. I mean, in, in Europe, in Asia, and especially in Japan, you know, I spent a lot of time in Japan, in, uh, in the Middle East. In the U.S., of course, I even spent two years in San Francisco looking at startups. And then it was really surprising because I kind of got involved and I, I kind of was able to, I ran into companies, very traditional companies uh, operating in kind of established businesses, you know, not known necessarily for innovation. And they, they kind of literally transformed themselves from uh, into into innovation powerhouses. And that was really the surprise to me. I was kind of, especially when I was in California, I was expecting kind of looking at the usual suspects, the companies in high tech, in entertainment, like, you know, I mean, you, you, you name them, right? I mean, Apple, Tesla, or, or Marvel, Netflix. And actually, I found that there was a, a, a completely different set of companies that uh, we would we don't hear about 
but, but they were extremely innovative. And what was really interesting to me is that they had transformed themselves into innovating companies in a very, let's say, proactive and systematic way. And that's what kind of was really interesting to me during the research. And then I wanted to basically document their stories because some of them are very really impressive stories and try to codify the the lessons that I learned from them and and and, and try to codify them in the form of frameworks or tools or uh, concepts and then make them available to everyone so that's that that's how the the, the book itself came out actually so it's it's more the the structure of the organizations that or the type of organizations that you found were doing great innovation well what was interesting is that uh, I mean I told you I've been studying and, and teaching innovation for a long time and what I run you know into very often that people believe that you need to have a genius leader or to to be a startup to innovate right and I found that that's not true I, I found as I said that the, you know uh, traditional established even centuries old kind of companies were able to innovate and and what they do is that they don't necessarily you know uh, focus on trying to uh, find huge, industry changing effects but they're more looking for for small but important uh, changes even sometimes in in unexpected places and the way they do that is that they 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 they, they kind of leverage the innovating capabilities of everyone in the organization so they they they, they use continuous systematic uh, uh, I- innovation driven by everyone in the in the organization and also they they innovate in everything they do and i think this is where i discovered that there was a, there was you know and i wanted to tell the story of a different narrative about innovation which is not about the the one genius big bang disruptive innovation but something where it was much more continuous systematic and it was not about changing the whole industry, but kind of, you know, innovating in, in your products, but also innovating in your processes, in your functions. And it was really driven by everyone in the organization. That, that was what intrigued me. Is that a culture? You're sort of creating a culture? Yes. So rather than trying to fix a problem, because I, so often I've seen uh, organizations fix it in a way which says, we can't change our business because it's going to be too hard. So we have to put innovation over here. And we have to give it enough resources and we do have to give it a leader and it has to have a process, but that's, that allows us to do some innovation over here in our marketplace or with our product without having to fix. Right. Absolutely. And what you're, and what you're saying is these examples that you've got in the yes. book are of companies who've said, we're going to, ch- we're going to change the core. Absolutely. It's exactly what you're saying. What I found is that in a lot of traditional companies, I mean, if you're not a startup, if you're not kind of a company that is starting you know, or disrupting your business. If you're a traditional company, usually you 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 think of innovation as um, you know something that senior leaders do or some specialist, the R and D guys, a new product development. And and I, very often when I walk into a company and I try to investigate and ask people who who does innovation around here, you know, everybody points me to the same usual suspects. You know, the <laughs> the the specialist of innovation. But then when you step back and you ask people, but who should be innovating at the company? Everybody admits, actually, everybody should be innovating. So what I found is that these companies, what they do is that they operate with two engines operating at, uh, you know, humming at the same time, operating at the same time. So they, they have their traditional 
what I call execution engine. So the execution engine is there. I mean, it's you know what we always see when we go see companies. We see, we see in front of our face. We see the execution engine. This is the engine that you know is implementing today's strategy. But these companies, what they have done is that they have proactively. I mean, I'm, this is very important. Huh? They have proactively created a parallel engine. A parallel engine. Uh, I call it the innovation engine. That is uh, about creating and rethinking the way things we do the way we do things today creating imagining the products of the future so what 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 this what is important is that every employee this is the key here is that they they are uh, uh, leveraging they are uh, calling upon the innovating capability of everybody in the organization so every employee gets engaged in both engines so the, 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 their daily work is 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 of course the execution, but on a regular basis, and this is the role of middle managers. On a regular ba- basis, they get involved in innovation activities. We can discuss about how you do that, but basically, every employee gets a chance to switch their mind sometimes from execution mode to innovation mode. And as you can imagine, execution mode is very much supply side driven and it's very much problem solving and the innovation mode it's a mindset it's really about the mindset the innovation mindset is very much customer focused it's yeah. about taking a customer uh, orientation and it's not problem solving it's about problem finding it's about finding new problems we can solve you know for the customer and mind you every employee in the company has a customer whether it's an internal or an external customer. HR, yeah. they have customers, right? They have many customers internally. And if they could just switch their mind from supply side to customer side and try to listen to what are the needs of their internal or external customers, then they are innovation mode. So this is what these companies have done. So they've created, uh, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but, but what I really was uh, uh, fascinating to me is how they created a very concrete formal innovating engine and this engine has like you you were suggesting it has a structure it has processes and it has a culture uh-huh. so this is what i'm talking about it's not kind of just one thing it's kind of a you know a combination of factors that create the execu- the innovation engine i'd love to hear more about it but as you were talking i was struck by and maybe you've got a maybe i could tease a benchmark out of from you from the research but there's a hi-fi retailer in the UK called Richer Sounds, which before Apple came along had um, had the revenue per square foot record. Small, you know, not on the high street, audiophile employees. And the thing that was amazing about them is that Richer Sounds would get two employee suggestions per month per employee. And it was that was that was my benchmark. And then I, I spoke to somebody who was doing some work helping Rolls-Royce roll theirs up. And they, I think at the time they had 38,000 employees and they were getting similar levels of impact input from their employees globally and then rolling it up to a sort of monthly board report. Is it, I mean, it, this innovation, so it's not just employee suggestions, but yes. they would be the type of things that you would see in a business. Absolutely. So this is actually maybe to anchor the conversation. Let me let me kind of give you and to frame the conversation. Let me give you an example, and then we can build we, we can build on it because there's there's a whole conceptual framework around it, and the, the, I, I can bring other examples. But let, let's take a 
an example to kind of really uh, set the conversation. Um, I mean, this is one company that is uh, featured in the book. Uh, it's Bayer, the uh, German pharmaceutical and uh, life science company. So Bayer, everybody knows Bayer. Bayer has a, a very long history, if you want, of um, scientific achievements through their R&D. You know, R&D. So they have this innovation driven by R&D. But in 2014, starting at the board level, they decided to create what I call an innovation engine. And what they did, and, and the innovation engine, actually, the strategy, the, 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 the statement was that we are, want to create an organization to elicit and leverage the capabilities of the 100,000 employees within Bayer. So what did they do? First, I mean, from a structural point of view, and this is a structural structure in the sense of tasks and roles and responsibilities. So they made the whole board responsible for innovation. So the whole board was responsible for innovation. So you can see innovation was kind of part of the core of the strategy. So the board was responsible. And then they selected 80 senior managers across the all the country regions and the global functions 80 managers, senior managers, who became innovation ambassadors. And these ambassadors were there to support the board. And they spent a lot of time, most of their time with middle managers, you know, explaining why innovation is important, advocating, supporting, helping them get trained in innovation. And then these middle managers, we might come back to the importance of middle managers, but these middle managers... Their job is not to drive innovation, but what they did is that they created a formidable support structure for middle, middle managers. They they trained and certified a thousand a thousand innovation coaches, which were activated locally across the organization. And then and then for the front line, so this is what you were uh, alluding to with the, the suggestion box, is they created a platform. It's called WeSolve. So this is a digital platform where every employee at BSF can post a, a problem they're struggling with and invite you know, for ideas, solutions uh, from across the organization. So get, to give you a sense, Dominic, what they tell me that they, they have 40,000 people who've actually engaged with WeSolve, who have been, uh, you know, active active on WeSolve. And, and one of the most, just to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, huh, one of the most impressive statistics they showed me is that, well, I mean, uh, uh, apart from the fact that they have about 200 challenges, you know, posted on WeSolve at any moment. But, but the most impressive one was that they said that two-thirds, two-thirds of the solutions that are posted on the platform come from a unit or a function different from the one where the problem was posted in the first place. So you, you, you can see this is really a structural from starting from the board to the ambassadors, to the coaches, to the digital platform, eliciting innovation, innovation ideas from everyone. I mean, this is what I'm talking about when I say it's an engine. It's not, it's not just say, oh, when you have an idea, just, just send it to me. No, this is completely structured with clear tasks, role, and responsibilities. Well, and also there's some transparency to it. Absolutely. Right. So often these suggestion boxes and schemes, you know, people put something into it, but they never hear back. So they think, well, why would I, why would I do that again? And also, also there's often, in that case, there's 
nothing in it for them, right? They've, they've said, oh, look, here's a thing that I've seen that somebody else should fix. In yes. this case, it's, yes. it's, can you please help me fix it? I'm, I'm thinking, I, I interviewed one of the other guests has been a guy called John T. Slater, who runs a, an innovation competition business. Um, and you're picking on something that he he's done a lot, which is solving a problem, uh, finding a solution cross industry. Yes. And so and so he sort of says, "What's your problem?" And then he goes out to industry and he works as a he works as a uh, a trusted middleman and brokers the cost of finding the solution. But you see, this is this is very important what you're saying here. And I think that two lessons I learned from from observing these companies that created this at least these digital platforms. What what I found was a trick is I mean you remember the the, the platform is called We Solve. People post problems. A lot of the platforms that I've seen, people ask uh, for ideas, post your ideas, and that fades away. If you ask for problems, anybody can maybe think of a solution to your problem. If you say, okay, I have an idea. So it is going to be a very self-selected population that will go to your idea. You see what I mean? But but the problem is is like anybody, and and the fact actually in, in the case of Bayer is that they get solutions to their problems coming from all sorts of functions and and and, and units in the company. So that's the first trick is is to have a platform for not for ideas. People say, oh, just submit your ideas. No, submit your problems, and then people will help you solve the problem. And the second thing, which I think is really to the core of what you just said is that the best example I had was at Allianz, the uh, insurance company. They they created a platform where people were, in the beginning, were submitting ideas. And, you know, after a month or two, they got a lot of people joining the, you know, and submitting stuff. And then after a few months, it faded away, it plummeted. And then when they looked at what was happening, is the fact that exactly as you said, is that once people submit two or three ideas, and they don't get any feedback, then they then they, they just say, what is it worse? I mean, it's no nobody's listening to me. So they give up. So what they've started to do is that whenever somebody submits an idea or you know something, uh, they would get a response within 15 days from what they would call an innovation coordinator. So they would be people at the local level monitoring all these submitted ideas or you know questions and make sure that the people would get some feedback, whether the idea moves on to a higher level, to a committee, or whether the idea just is, you know, but people would get an answer. And I think this is very important way to motivate people because one other thing I found very surprising, and and, and I mentioned this to many senior executive CEOs who, who, who say, you know, can we help, can you help us with innovation? And I usually do an audit in the company. You know, I say, okay, I want to talk to a few people. And then I report back and I say to people, you know, but you, you, I don't understand your problem. You, you have very innovative people. And, and so the fact is that there's a lot of innovation. There are a lot of people who have ideas, but they don't think that their bosses want them. So it is very important to motivate people to give them recognition. So if you submit an idea and nobody pays attention, if you're not acknowledged for it, or if you don't think anything is happening to it, then you won't do it again. It's simple. And so these problems are could be internal process innovation or internal customer or external customer. Could be anything. Absolutely. So for me, 
I mean, another key important uh, part of building this innovation engine. Eh? So I said there's a structure and there are processes. I mean, I can come back to the process if you want, but but everybody is involved in all the processes. So the frontline have an important role to play. Middle managers have an important play role to play and senior leaders too. And the frontline, you see, is really the... The, the most important people in what I call the creation process. They are the guys who generate the new ideas. And, you know, in innovation, new ideas are the, the real raw material, the fuel for this. And for that, they have lots of ideas, but they don't necessarily know how to translate it into innovation. So they need, they need to, let's say, develop uh, some additional skills. And I would say there are three skills they need to develop. They need to learn how to listen to what I call the, I mean, it, not I call, what is called the voice of the customer. Because you remember, right? innovation, just to, to come back to what I said earlier, innovation is about problem finding. Execution is about problem solving, but innovation is about problem finding. So you need to find the problems and the problems, they are at the customer. So you need to learn how to listen to the customer. And here the key is to, because, you know, in innovation, you're looking for the weak signals. You're not looking for the strong signals because strong signals, everybody picks them up, your competitors and everybody. So you're looking for the weak signals. So you have to learn how to listen to the, to the voice of the customer with great empathy, with a high level of empathy, try to understand their pain points. What are the things that they like that you could actually amplify and give them more? Or what are, what are their wishes? And, and for that, people need to be reminded. I mean, it's, it's, it's very simple training. It doesn't take much, but to be reminded when you are. So imagine, you know, I'm a salesperson and I'm trying to sell you something. So I'm in execution mode. I'm trying to sell. But I tell these people, at least try to spend 10 minutes or even maybe, you know, every, every, every once in a while, spend 30 minutes, but switch your mental mode from execution mode to innovation mode. And then try to listen to your customer, not in your usual sell mode and tell mode, but in a listening mode and listen with empathy. Try to understand what what is you know uh, Clay Christensen called it the job to be done. What is the customer trying to do? What is their life about? So this is what I call the the voice of the customer. The second thing they need to learn to to listen to is what I call the the silence of the customer. The things that the customer doesn't tell you, and they don't tell you for either two reasons. Either they don't know about a need or a problem that they have, so they can't tell you about it. Or I found cases where they know about a problem, they're suffering from a problem, but they don't tell you because they don't think you're the one who should be solving it for them. It's not your job. I mean, you know, the typical, the typical example, but it's an old one. I'll give you a real one that I saw, but the, the old one is the story about IKEA, you know, solving the babysitting problem for, for young couples who want to go shopping for furniture. But let me tell you about this company uh, just to also to give you a sense of the companies that are featured in the book. It's a company, it's a Turkish company. It's called Kortsa. And I mean, this is a, a very nice example because they literally transformed themselves from being a commodity supplier. So they manufacture fabric, fabric that is used to reinforce tires. You know, so, they, you know, they, you have the valve and then you have the reinforcing tire and then you have the, the rubber. And they used to be a um, 
a supplier, a commodity supplier, you know, arm's length, everything is based on price. And they transform themselves into a strategic partner, you know, providing innovative solutions, services, products to not only the tire industry, but they moved into the construction industry, they reinforced material for the electronics industry and even aerospace. So anyway, let me tell you what they do. On a, on a regular basis, they send cross-disciplinary teams, you know, their own cross-disciplinary teams to the plants of their customers. Okay, so they go to this tire company and they were telling me about this plant, this tire plant. They send this team and, and these teams, they stay actually, they used to camp. They used, I mean, they showed me pictures of, of tents. They would actually have a tent, you know, planted in the middle of the plant. Now, so now they don't use the tent anymore, but, but they still go for three, four days at a time. And the team stays in the plant and they roam around talking to people, trying to understand what the customer is doing. And they told me about this interesting story. It's, it's it, just to tell you that it can be small stuff, you know? So they, they noticed that the workers at the, the tire plant, they were struggling with, you know, to safely offload, upload, offload these rolls of fabric from, from the trucks. What they told me is that, you know, somebody in the team kind of made a small comment and they immediately realized that they were, they were peeking into a problem that the customers were struggling with, but they didn't even know. Yeah. 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 They didn't know. So what this, People at Corsa did, they, of course, they went back to the plant and they talked to their engineers and everybody. And then they developed a small uh, procedure and a small routine, a small process routine. They taught it. They went back to the plant of their customer and they taught them the small routine because they know how to deal with rolls of fabric. Of course, it's their daily life, you know. And just with this little, you know, routine that they taught them, they helped them save the resources to offload the rolls from 90 minutes for three people to now they can do it for 12 minutes, one person. But you see, for me, it's a, it's an interesting uh, example for two reasons. I mean, it's not disrupting the industry, I'll grant you, you know. But number one, they solved a problem that the customer didn't even know about. The customer never told them, you know, we don't know how to offload this. Can you solve it for them, for for us, right? So you need to have this approach. I mean, it's very close to what we call ethnography. You have to go and live with your customer. Just immerse yourself in the environment of your customer and try to, with a lot of empathy, try to understand what are they trying to do? What are they struggling with? And then you can maybe solve a problem for them. This this example of the the the, the offloading the roles is a good example of silence of the customer because the customer would never tell you about it because they don't know and they don't know that you can solve it for them. Now, just to finish before you ask your question, so that I can finish my uh, three skills. So, the voice of the customer, learn how to listen to the silence of the customer, and learn how to. Uh, try to learn from non-customers, non-customers. So I can give you a quick example of very simple non-customers. Uh, fist cars. And this is also, I mean, this is a 370-year-old, you know, the Finnish company, you know, best known for the orange scissors, you know? Yeah, yeah. And cutting tools. So to develop their cutting tools, 
they actually go and observe surgeons in operating rooms, or they go talk to forestry uh, uh, workers who, who cut trees on a, a large scale. So these are not their customers, but they try to learn from them. But I can, I can tell you that whether you're, you, you're inside the firm trying to innovate a process or trying to innovate for your, your customer, in fact, there are a lot of non-customers out there because you have suppliers, you have, you have um, logistics companies in your ecosystem, you have uh, uh, influencers, you have uh, prescribers, you have even regulators. I can tell you a great story about somebody who, who created an innovation for the regulators and unlocked the market for them. So people forget that you can find inspiration not being only obsessed with your customer, but looking around. Maybe the suppliers will give you a great idea about how to innovate for your customer, or maybe the prescribers or the regulators. So just to explain that this is the role of the frontline. They have a lot of, they're dealing with customers and non-customers on a daily basis. There are lots of ideas in front of them. There's a couple of things that sprang to mind. I remember one of the companies I was I was leading, we, we did well in the best companies, best place to work stuff. And because we'd done okay, but we knew it was quite a good sharing community. I did the same thing. I sent teams of three off to visit everyone who'd done, you know, everyone in the top 50. And we, that year, I think we did 26 benchmarking visits and people came back with all sorts of amazing innovations, you know, that they, that, that they had seen in a seen in somebody who wasn't a competitor that they thought culturally would fit in our business. Not everybody wanted to do it, mm -hmm. but for those people who did want to do it, it had, I think, a profound impact on their perceived quality of life, work, involvement, you know, and, and it, as you say, it becomes cultural. And I also, I don't think I have met a company, very rarely do I meet a company that really understands its customers. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we're sitting in a, I'm sitting with a senior leadership team and we're thinking about strategy for the next five years. Yeah. And probably, you know, you know, this is the executive level, you know, HR marketing, probably never spoken to a customer. Yeah. Right. And so making it a cultural norm in the business and, and just because those, the, it's the front line so often where they give up, right. Cause they're, they're trying to solve a customer problem that they know they should be able to fix. And somehow the organization's just made it impossible for them to help the customer. And it's just so debilitating and demoralizing. Yeah. I mean, and I think this is kind of the, why I, I discovered that these firms that I, um, you know, that, that I studied, they ended up creating a special, you know, organization, a parallel organization where people would systematically have to, to kind of, you know, pivot. You, you pivot from the execution engine to the uh, innovation engine. And when you are in the innovation engine, then you embrace a different set of tools, your different attitude. And, and you, you know, I mean, companies try to do that. I mean, you know, now you hear a lot about companies that have a, an innovation lab or a garage where people go and they, and they innovate. I think this is, this is very important. I mean, I think any kind of you know, prompt that kind of tell people now, now we're in a different mode. We are focused on the customer. And if you need some tool or some prompt to kind of get you to 
really change your mindset, then that's fine. And I think it's really a question of, of building this muscle. It's, it's like, for me, it's like, you know, uh, uh, culture is about habits. It's about, and, and how do you create the habits is by building this muscle. And, uh, and if you don't make it systematic habit that everybody, uh, again, I'm insisting everybody in the company has to, in their daily and in, in their kind of work life, have an occasion. And it can be once every two months. It doesn't have to be, you know, I mean, some people might be spending you know, uh, uh, dedicated time to an innovation project, but everybody could be spending 30 minutes doing a little exercise every two months where it's like, you know, like a bicycle. Once, once you learn, you don't, you don't forget. So if you get an exercise where you have that catalytic moment where you say, Oh my God, I understood something about my customer. I never knew before. And the, the worst thing is that you may notice that we all have in our daily life experiences as customers and we see things that are done wrongly to us <laughs> and we complain and all that and when we when we think about our own you know business when we are the supplier we forget our customers are having exactly the same experiences and it's just a question of every once in a while making sure that we switch our mindset from the execution to the innovation or from a supplier view to a customer view. The I thought the example of the getting the fabric roll off the truck was brilliant because it does another thing, which you didn't mention, I guess, which is that it educates the customer that the supplier might be able to help them in a way that they didn't understand before. So you pick something like that, and, and we're not we're not going to charge you for this. We've taken our people at our expense. We've come and camped at your factory, and we found this thing where we can f- forevermore save you save you th- ninety minutes and two people every time we ship you something. And then and then everybody's sitting there going, "What else could we find?" It, it just feels like it becomes a partnership. Not it's that movement from vendor to expert. I mean, you, you hit it on the nail. This is so important in B2B because the problem with B2B, especially, I mean, imagine, I mean, they're not selling the fabric more expensive, you see. The price of the fabric is set for all the competitors. So how do you get the business? Is by providing more value. And the value is going to be in solving solutions like that, in bringing services, in bringing uh, solutions that they didn't even know about that. This is, like you say, you move from a vendor to a partner, a strategic alliance. And innovation is a very good driver in B2B for creating a, a, a strong relationship. And then there was one thing you said to make sure you, I didn't let you forget, which was, I mean, we were talking about it before we started recording, which was that the thing that blew your mind was that the middle managers oh, yes. is, is just the the, the secret sauce or the glue, I guess. Yes, yes. So, so what I was trying to describe to you is the role of, you know, the front line. I mean, the front line are very important because whether we want it or not, this is where the ideas are going to come from. Because they, because you remember, innovation is about the customer and the people who are on a daily basis with the customer are the front line and the non-customers. So, so, so we need to give them permission. See, they need, they need three things to innovate the front line. They need to have permission to feel that they are able. They need to feel capable. So we need to give them some tools, you know, some, some and time and resources, and they need to feel motivated. And this is what the middle managers need to do. What I discovered, and it was a big surprise to me, is how important, how vital middle managers are to innovation. 
I mean, without middle managers, innovation gets lost. And what is really interesting is that in, in, in many established companies, you remember, we're talking about established sp- startups have a different problem. But in established companies, the senior leaders you were talking about, they for them, they have to deal with a lot of uncertainty, competition, external forces, disruption and all that. So for them, innovation is a no-brainer. They understand it. This, and it's an imperative. The front line, as you saw, they're seeing the customers having difficulties, they have pain points, they have problems. So they see that with innovation, they can solve the problem. So innovation is not a big deal for them. It's, it's a very natural thing. But the middle managers are the ones that are squeezed in the middle. And mind you, we make them responsible for execution. They're responsible for execution. We don't train them in innovation. So they are kind of shielded from this external pressure that innovation is important. So, so a lot of people perceive them as the blockers, but in fact, it's, they're not blocking. They're doing their job, which is to mind execution. But in, in, as a matter of fact, they have a very important role. One is to actually give permission. It's very silly to say, but Dominique, whenever I ask people, if you don't, and I tell them, you know, I ask them, if what happens if you don't give permission to your staff to innovate? What do you think will happen? Well, they won't. They'll have a lot of ideas, but they won't bring them, them to you because they don't think that we want their ideas. They don't even have the feeling that they have the permission to do it. So they have to give the permission to the people. And second, they have to play the role of connectors. So they have a second role, which is to play the role of connectors. They are the ones who have this elevation in the organization. They are at the right level of elevation in the organization where they can connect the ideas that are coming from the front line with other ideas in the company and other resources and make sure that this kind of social network kind of functions properly. So they are, they are very important in terms of connectors. And I can tell you some interesting, you know, some great stories I saw uh, about how middle managers connected, you know, the people and created, you know, a big, 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 uh, big, uh, you know, business. And the, the thing about the middle managers that intrigues me is you don't want to pay people to do this. So how did, how did companies create social currency to, to reward the right behavior. Okay, so this is this is a very interesting problem. Who do you how do you incentivize and who do you incentivize for innovation? So my conclusion looking at all these very, you know, these companies that became very innovative is that the one thing you don't want to do is to create pressure on the front line. As soon as you incentivize innovation, you know, uh, uh, and put pressure on the front line, you're killing it. You're killing innovation because, um, and I'll tell you why, why, because uh, at the front line, it is not possible to observe innovation. I mean, in execution engine, you know, people are executing a task, which very often has a procedure, has a, a, a way of doing it. And the boss can always know if people are doing the right job or not. But with innovation, there's no way to know that people have an idea in the head. I can't come here and, you know, looking looking at you across the screen and say, Dominic, I'm sure you have an idea and you're hiding it from me. So the, the thing is that people might have a lot of ideas, but you can't put pressure on them. The people you can incentivize is the middle managers. 
And l- let me give you an example. This is Alliance, Alliance UK. What they did is that they created this very soft incentive system for middle managers. So what they do is that on a regular basis, they publish the innovation, they call it the innovation league table of the most innovative units within the UK operations. So now you can see the psychology of middle managers. I mean, you know, there's no punition, but nobody really wants to be at the bottom of that league table. So now the pressure is for middle managers to make sure that they create an atmosphere, an environment where their their team, team members, bring new ideas. So this is what I call, you may know this motto that we often hear, uh, don't ask for permission. Yes. Ask for forgiveness. So this is what we tell frontline people to encourage them to innovate. So what I'm telling now, I'm telling middle managers, I'm telling them, give permission to innovate and make other people jealous. Because if you give permission, you know, if you give permission to your frontline to innovate, they don't have to ask forgiveness because it is a behavior that you wish from them. Of course, in, in when they are in the innovation engine, you don't want them to start innovating when they are executing. You, you see the logic? Oh, yeah. You have to create a separate space. So there's a space, there's a time where they move into the innovation engine or the innovation space. And then you want them to innovate. So they don't have to, they don't have to ask permission. But if they innovate and they present to the CEO and, you know, they get awards on innovation, you look good as a middle manager. So I would say the, the, the incentive should be on the middle managers. And by the way, the middle managers are not the ones who are going to come up with the ideas. It's their team. Yeah. It's just the permission. I, well, and actually, I'd, I'd written another note here, which was black holes, because in the past, I've implemented systems which show how thanks flows through the organization. How what? How thanks. You know, like, thank you, Ben. Thank you for doing oh. You said You said you'd do a thing for me, and you did it. So now I go on the system, and I say, Ben, thank you for doing it. Like, kudos. So you roll something like that out. It's a very positive message. But what it showed us very clearly when we've done this a couple of times is oh. some managers, some, some employees, frontline employees who work for some managers never get thanks from anybody inside the organization. And so what it does is it shows the cultural black holes in the business that nobody, nobody knew that that's where internal value was being destroyed. And external value can never be better than the internal value chain. So and so, I, so as you were talking about the league table, I'm thinking that's exactly, it's the same principle. Absolutely. Well, listen, listen, listen. Uh, I mean, actually, have you, have you written this story about the black holes? Is it documented? No, 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 not at oh, all. You no. Let me tell you. I mean, I've, actually, you may want to go and check my last blog post on my website. So that I have a website for the book. Huh? It's uh, uh, www.bti.com. And I have a blog post about a Japanese manager and how did he change the culture in his team? And he changed the culture of his team, I mean, towards innovation, huh? with two words. Thank you. Exactly what you said. He, and when I, exp- and I, I asked him, I'm actually, the story, I worked with him for a long time. So you, you'll, you'll see. And there's actually a picture of him. Uh, I, I met him when I was in Japan last year. And he explained to me why he did that. Out of a sudden, actually, his team was really shocked because out of a sudden, anytime there was somebody coming to see him with an idea, he would say, 
thank you. And you will make a big fuss out of it. Thank you for bringing this idea. Or if somebody suggested an idea in a meeting, instead of, you know, ridiculing people, saying this is a silly idea, he would say, thank you for suggesting the idea. And I asked, why do you do that? And he said, I understood one thing. And I said, what is it? He said, when people come to see me with a new idea, I know they're taking a big risk. You see, because as I said earlier, as a boss, you can't observe observe that somebody has an idea. So if they volunteer an idea to you, they are somewhat taking a risk Uh because it could be a terrible idea or people could make fun of them. They could get scolded. So he started to say, thank you. And I said, why? Thank you. He said, because when people take a risk, they're making a gift to me. And when people give me a gift of a new idea, I say, thank you. Yeah. It's, at that point, there should be no definition of equality. Just should just be quantity. Absolutely, it's exactly what you said. Is that you want to make sure that people have the desire to bring the idea. I mean, then we can discuss. Oh, and actually, let me tell you. I mean, now you, you're asking for it, <laughs> Dominic. What he did, uh, it, it, it's mentioned a little bit in the in the article. People started to come to see him with all sorts of ideas, and some of them were terrible ideas. So it, what he decided to do is to find a way to uh, train his people or give them a, a mental discipline to make a judgment of their own ideas. And actually, it was based on a model that I showed him. It's something we, te- we teach in strategy. But, but he said, I didn't show them, I didn't show them the, the conceptual model. He said, I just asked them questions, the power of questions. And I said, what did you do? He said, okay. Somebody comes to me and says, boss, I have a great idea. So first he would say, thank you, of course. And then he would say, but uh, that sounds like a great idea, but can you help me understand why would, our, why would the customer like it? Why would the customer like it? So he would always start by asking about the customer. Why would the customer like this idea? And of course, m- most of the people in the beginning, they used to say, I don't know. So instead of telling them you're stupid, you're, how, why, why would you don't know? He said, why don't you go and ask the customer? And then the people would come back to him and say, okay, so this is why the customer likes the idea, would like the idea. So then he would ask this second question. And the second question is, why should we invest in this idea? What, what would be the benefit to us as a company? Would it help us reduce cost, increase price? What is it? And then, so you, you notice, huh? always the customer first when you're talking about innovation and what's the value of the firm? Because innovation is the two things, right? a new idea that the customer is willing to pay for and a benefit for the firm. But he told me it took maybe six to eight months. And then he noticed the first person who came to see him and said, boss, I think I have an idea and the customer is going to like it because of the na 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 And we will benefit from it because of this and that. Because they talk to each other. Just by asking these questions always in the same order, in a repetitive way, they picked on it. And this is for me how middle managers using these micro behaviors can change the culture of their team. You don't need to kind of make big statements, just kind of keep persistently asking the same question. Thank you. Thank you. You motivate, you create the desire. And then if people don't know how to, how to think about whether it's a good idea or not, just quick and dirty. Why would the customer like it? If you can't say, if you can't tell me, you would know yourself that your idea needs refining. So, so I love that, and it's it's uh, middle managers coaching. 
Yes. Not 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 telling. Absolutely. I, I like that. And it's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me because it came from a Japanese manager. Uh, uh, and it, you may know that from a cultural point of view, Japanese people don't speak up. They, they don't contradict their boss. So uh, having, I mean, no, I teach a lot in Japan and having people speak up and contradict, you know, the professor or, 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 or say what they think is very difficult. So I think he did a great job by, as, as I would say, giving them permission and then giving them this mental discipline to be able to judge their own ideas. Of course, they're more sophisticated tools later when you start to, you know, refine the idea and all that. But, but you can weed out a lot of the ideas already and yet create this motivation to look for ideas and bring them to the boss. So this is, this is why the, the middle managers are important. So maybe to complete the story, because I said, Frontline are important, middle managers are important, and they were like the the uh, the one I didn't expect. And senior leaders are also very important. I mean, seniors because they they are the one who have to put innovation at the core. What I noticed, I've 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 run a lot of training at INSEAD and 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 also in my consulting on innovation. And very often, you know, I I ask for the senior leader, the CEO, to come and open the program. And, and, you know, and, and, and when people are really on this desired transformation, transformational journey, I insist that they should continue to attend. Because what I realized that, that as soon as the CEO doesn't show up anymore, people think it's just a training and then the transformation doesn't happen. So the senior leaders, they really have to put innovation at the core and really give the permission for everybody. They are the ones who have to create the infrastructure. You remember the, the key roles. And then something that I um, found out is I call them the, the chief reframing officers. They are the ones who have to reframe the mission. And because you have a strategy today that is based on a mission and everybody is trying to accomplish this strategy within the mission. But if you want to innovate, you want to enlarge you want to open up the box so that people can look for ideas in a broader box. You remember I told you about the the Corsa, the the fabric yeah, yeah. manufacturer. The CEO, I, I I've known him, I mean, I think since 2006. Actually, I, I met him last week in in Istanbul. But he did something really fascinating to me. They were making reinforcing fabric for tires, and then one day. With his team, they realized that, as a matter of fact, they're very good at reinforcing any kind of material. So then he changed the logo of the firm. He said, we are the reinforcer. And he said, now, so he changed the, he changed the frame of the company. Now the company yeah. is the reinforcer. And he said, now we're going to be the reinforcer for any industry, any company that needs a reinforcing solution. So now he suddenly opened the box, the space within which the whole company was looking for new solutions for problems that people were having, reinforcing construction material, electronics. And he was they were very proud because they got reinforcing material on the shuttle in the aerospace. So you can see that without him reframing the mission, Opening the box for innovation to come in different new areas, it wouldn't have happened. 
So this is why I call the, the, the senior leaders the, the chief reframing officers. So they have to give the permission, but also allow for a broader space. They need to challenge the status quo. This is by enlarging, by saying, we are the reinforcer. You are challenging the very identity of the firm. You're challenging the status quo. You're challenging the, 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 the assumptions about what is courts are about. Well, courts is about not about fabric for tires. It's about reinforcement solutions, right? It changes the identity. It changes the who we are. It changes who our customers are and what our products are. So I think this is very important. Do you know what? It changes the customers if you use the demographic basis for defining customer. But if you've taken the what's the enemy in the mind of the customer? Or if you, as you said, yes. Clayton Christensen's job to be done yes. model, then the job to be done is probably the same across multiple customers. Absolutely, It's just the demographics will be different. And so, but so many people, I, I say to people, so why does the customer, you're, well, you've obviously got some customers, but why did they buy from you? And why did they pick you and not one of your competitors? Most times people just look at me blankly and they, they don't know why that decision got made. And they've got no they've got no structural mechanism for asking the customer because one of the things that I get people to do very quickly is is I say look that when you win a new customer ask them a couple of questions one of them I got from Fred Reichelt which is this sort of good profit bad profit you know uh, growth thing like did it come as a result of a referral or word of mouth or did we did we market to you yeah right and then also during the sales process what did we do to you that nearly meant we lost your business. Mm. And and so quite often it's that it's that thing that the customer hasn't told you right. that you have, that you have no idea you know you got them as a prospect and you did win them but there'll be some what was the low point of that journey and they've they're on board now they've got an emotional attachment to you in some way they'll tell you you know that where you're where it was disconnected for them and so often that's uh, just like an easy hole to plug. Sure. And it's like really, again, this this kind of very tunnel vision of the supplier side view is that you're problem solving. Once you've you solved the solution, you find the solution to your customer, then you think your job is done. But if you just spend a few minutes switching to a, an innovation, a customer side view, then you realize that there are lots of things happening, even in the relationship that you don't pay attention to and just kind of saying for for just 30 minutes let's focus on the other things like the questions you're asking what was the low point what other things what other things could we solve for you that are not even for us to do but we could solve them so you know i always tell people if you solve a problem for your customer a problem that they don't think it's your job to do but you do solve it for them then they're going to love you oh well it's in the same way that the, the mission you've You've yes. just opened, you've opened the box and then they go, oh, okay, hang on. I don't know if you can solve this problem, but here's my problem. Uh, and absolutely. And like you were saying, I mean, maybe the capability is already there. You, you could solve it, but you never, it never occurred to you. So it's really a question of having a kind of a broader vision and, and looking at your customer in a broader sense. And looking at the activities that you, you're doing for the customer, but also thinking about what happens before? What happens after? It's As you were talking there, what sprang to mind was that I haven't done any work with, but I've interviewed some of the people at WL Gore and been on, been on a number of uh, events, met them at a number of events. 
And one of the things they do is they keep their pro- they keep their factories, the Dunbar number. They keep sort of you know the factory has about a hundred people in it. Because I was thinking one of the challenges is those people on the production line and the salespeople who might be engaging with the customer, often the salesperson knows what's in the product brochure and he knows the product really well. And he, he can sell the customer on the problem that the customer understands intuitively. But what Gore found was that actually, if your business unit is small enough serving a small cohort of customers, then everybody in the organization knows deeply how it all works, like the customer side, the supply side, and then everybody can have those types of conversations. And as opposed to it, the level of knowledge, the granularity of the knowledge changing over time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then it comes back to some organization. You can, so you, can, you, can, you can drive this from a structural perspective as well. This is actually the fundamental thing about what I'm trying to say in the book is that a lot of these practices, you know, you can see them, you hear about them, you know, in different organizations. But what was fantastic about these companies that I followed is that they were systematic about it and they created as, as an integrated kind of, um, you know, structure with, uh, you know, uh, embedded processes and roles and, 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 and information systems to support it. I mean, you have to be proactive about it and very disciplined about creating this very concrete, let's say, politically legitimized, you know, space for innovating and, and, and make sure that everybody understands that I call it innovation is everybody's business. So everybody, you know, the, from, from top to bottom, uh, everybody has a contribution to make to innovation. It's not only the specialist. And also get out of this feeling that innovation is only about products and technology. I mean, uh, you, you remember the, the courtside example about, uh, you know, the process for uploading the fabric rolls. I mean, this is, this is, I mean, I, I found people innovating in HR, innovating in, in even in the finance department. I, I, I have some examples of that. So you can innovate in everything you do in the company. But the key is really creating this sense of, um, of habit. Uh, uh, that everybody knows that at some point during their work, they have to switch to the innovation engine, even if, if it's like for, for 30 minutes. And if they don't know how to do it, I mean, there, there are actually, you know, there are tools, there are processes, there are techniques that, um, um, I mean, there are plenty of them out there. And I have a whole chapter on tools and techniques, uh, uh, to do that. But the important thing is that if you, very often I get CEOs to ask me, you know, what should I do to, to, to create, you know, an innovative organization? And I say a simple word. I say, just pay attention to it. If you pay attention to innovation, it will happen. I mean, it starts with that. If they don't pay attention to it, if they, if they say, I want to pay attention to it, then, then, then it cascades pretty naturally. It's pretty easy to, to kind of understand. And, you know, I mean, of course, I offer a framework that shows that everybody is involved and that you have structures and processes, but, but people derive them quite, quite naturally because they understand their, their own organization. But the key is really to take it seriously, take innovation seriously and pay attention to it. Ben, 
What is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Well, I told you earlier, I mean, this thing about the middle managers, I mean, you know, I was, I was looking in the wrong places. I was looking <laughs> for the genius guy. I was looking for, you know, uh, what kind of, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was, of course I was in California, so I was looking for, uh, techniques and tools, which by the way, I, I, I believe in, I mean, when you're trying to create something systematically, it came from my kind of, you know, experience looking at Japanese firms and how they created the uh, the production systems that we learned a lot from. So it's really about processes, about tools, about creating systematic, uh, you know, habits. But the one that I didn't really expect is the the importance, the critical role of of, of middle managers. And 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 I like to call it, you know, to call them differently. I call them the, uh, I say the middle managers are the forgotten heroes of innovation. They, they are truly forgotten heroes uh, or, or the unspoken heroes of innovation because without them, I mean, you can see everything gets blocked. I mean, it doesn't happen. People don't realize, a lot of executives, when I tell them that, they get surprised, but I I, I remind them that, and, and I think there was some, some research that detected that, is that their employees, their staff, their team members, they spend more time trying to second guess what the manager wants from them than actually doing the job. So, so if they don't give them permission to innovate, they won't do it. They'll have, they'll retire. They'll retire with brilliant ideas in their mind that they never spoke up about. Well, and as you were talking now, I was thinking about, uh, Feynman's review of the two shuttle disasters, uh, where, you know, the middle managers, the engineers raised their, said they had problems and raised their concerns, but the middle managers didn't want to be the people to take the bad news up. And so we'll keep it down. And that, you know, innovation or news, you know, it's that. Yeah. And in fact, you see, if you don't make them responsible for it, but they are incentivized on it. And then if they get support, because you see, the, the, every time I, 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 I talk to middle managers, they're not trained. They don't know how to do that. And it's not their job. But if you give them the resources. So one thing that I found uh, uh, in common in all of these companies, whether it's Samsung with its VIP, uh, you know, project team, uh, I saw this in BSF with something called Perspective. Allianz had something called I2S. Bayer, I told you already about this uh, thousand coaches, is that they created this central unit. There's a central unit where they train and certify innovation coaches. And then these coaches, you know, on call. So if a middle manager has a group of people or even an individual coming and says, you know, I went to the customer and I th- I saw this. I think there's a great idea there. Uh, could I do it? The, 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 the manager doesn't have to run that. He just calls on this uh, uh, central unit who brings the coaches and then they follow the, the project from, from beginning until it's presented and, and, you know, and move to the execution engine. But I think this is what, uh, what worries middle managers that they feel that they're going to have to run the innovation project. So you have to create this and it, I told you about Bayer who had a thousand people trained, but these people ultimately they go to the local level and then they, and they, and they work. So they local resource and then they train people locally. So it's kind of a, 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 a bootstrapping process where you have these uh, people who, you know, I mean, you know, there's no, there's nothing new uh, under the sun. It's exactly what people did with the quality movement. You remember when you had the blue belts and then the green belts, and then people would be trained, and then you would train people locally. So this is the same idea. This is exactly the same idea. Middle managers, they don't know how to do innovation. 
give them a central resource they can call upon. And then and then these people, they love to, you know, I noticed that these people, once they've done a project and they, they, they liked it and they have a, a sense of how to use the tools and techniques, they want to become the, the, the local innovation guy. You know, you yeah. had the IT guy, you know, I'm kind of the, the guy who knows about this tool and about this software. So here is the same. You, you will have like people locally who would be known for being the guy who knows about design thinking. And there's another guy who knows about blue ocean strategy. And there's another guy who knows about, you know, lean, lean startup. And, but, but you need this central unit that not only uh, you know, like at Axel Nobel, I saw that they, they, they have a unit that actually monitors the outside market on what is new on innovation, what are new innovation processes and techniques. And then they, they, they check them, they kind of uh, 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 adapt them to the Axel Nobel culture, and then they, they propose them to the business units. And some business units like this method better than the other, and then they train people. And then you have a local a local guy in your team who is an expert on design thinking. You don't need to be as a middle manager. You don't need to be the one running the design thinking uh, project, but but you have that resource. And and bet, better if you have another middle manager who needs somebody who knows about design thinking, guess what? You have a chip now. You can actually offer your guy to help another make 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 the other guys jealous. I don't know if you remember, Toyota had said something really fascinating. Uh, they, they had said at some point that quality is free, and they proved it. Once people were trained and they have the mindset that quality is important, then quality is free. You don't have to pay for it. And I'm almost tempted to say that in the same way, innovation can be free. If you give permission to, to innovate, you have this huge population in your company, all this innovating capability right there that you're not leveraging and innovation could be free. I think that's amazing that it's so often, it's, you meet, I meet people all the time and, and innovation is one of their biggest challenges. So it's great to be able to point to your book built to innovate as a resource for people to resource and inspiration so that traditional businesses with this problem have got somewhere to go. What other books do you think people should pick up? Or maybe they're even just, you know, about innovation or maybe about other topics that, that you're interested in. On innovation, or at least on, uh, on the importance of the mindset. Um, I mean, this is something that I've, uh, I've read recently and I'm still under the shock. So that's why I'm going to mention about it. I don't know if you can see it. It's, uh, uh, the author is Aidan McCullen, M.C. Cullen, C-U-L-L-E-N. And it's called Undisruptable. And, and it's really, really nice. It fits a lot with uh, with Built to Innovate in the sense that this is all about mindset and 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 how do you create a, a, a mechanism by which you can switch mindsets. And as soon as you switch mindset, then a lot of possibilities open up for you. Fab. What else? What else you got? What else? I mean, I think I think most people would know. I mean, just to stay on innovation, people would know Blue Ocean Strategy. They would know. Christensen's book. I think these are very important books. Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you for giving us all your time. Yeah, no, no. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Brilliant. Thanks very much. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.